Welcome to StoryPrint, a podcast created with the belief that everyone's life story is as unique to them as their fingerprint. And just like your fingerprint, your life story identifies and clarifies who you are. In this first podcast, I talk with Rick Bird, who is the head men's basketball coach at Belmont University. I was fortunate to play for him during my college basketball career. People have often asked me before, what was it like to play for Coach Bird? And my usual response is that he didn't have to intimidate to motivate. His competitiveness, coupled with the way he cared for his team and the program, was so apparent that you just didn't want to let him down. In a profession full of coaches who are constantly self-promoting, Coach Bird stands out as genuinely humble, self-effacing, and always willing to deflect to others the attention that he and the Belmont program gets. I'm admittedly biased, but I believe Coach Bird to be the best college basketball coach in the country, and when I say he is an even better person and friend and mentor, it's not just lip service. It's heartfelt. I hope you will enjoy our conversation, and I believe his story will be an inspiration to others. Here's Coach Rick Bird on the StoryPrint Podcast. Welcome, everybody. This uh, is episode one uh, of the podcast, and I'm here today with Coach Rick Bird, Belmont University's uh, men's basketball coach, and um, wanted Coach Bird to be my first guest on this show for a number of reasons, um, one of which is, quite honestly, probably other than the divine and maybe my parents, he's probably the biggest reason I wound up in Nashville, Tennessee, um, I'm originally from Winchester, Kentucky, and he recruited me to come play on the Belmont men's basketball team in 1998 uh, and came down here and did that, had a wonderful experience, and uh, I'd like to think we've maintained a good friendship since. So, um, Coach, thanks for thanks for being on today. Glad to be here. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, again, this is our first podcast, so we're going to see how it goes. Uh, I want these these uh, conversations to, to be informal and pretty free, so... Um, you know, I always think that it's good to find out where a person came from in order to be able to tell where they are now and where they're going. So if you don't mind, maybe just take a few minutes and share a little bit about your childhood and your parents and your family and where you're from. Sure. That's uh, easy to do. I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, my dad was Ben Bird, who was a sports writer for the Knoxville Journal, which was the morning paper. For a long, long time, uh, in Knoxville, um, he was—he was a great writer. Uh, he's in the Tennessee State Sports Hall of Fame and several other Hall of Fames. Uh, uh, my mom was a registered nurse, and uh, uh, you know, neither of them were uh, were rich or getting rich at that point, and we lived in a really modest neighborhood, which I don't know about you, but when I drive back by that house, which which I basically lived in from age one to fifth grade, it, it, it shrunk considerably 
it looks so much smaller. The side yard that we used to play baseball in is way too small to play baseball in, and uh, uh, the, just the streets a lot shorter than it used to be. It's uh, but had a great childhood. My dad, uh, my dad's job had tremendous influence on on what I've ended up doing for sure. Um, his beat, as they call what what uh, sports writers or or newspaper writers cover uh, almost exclusively was the, was Tennessee basketball, and so um, I got to start going to games when I was really young. Uh, when I got to be about eight, that's a guess. I started s selling programs for a quarter apiece before the games and when the horn blew to start the game I could quit selling them and I'd run down and sit under the press table under my dad's seat at the press table because there was no fancy tables back then there was no no fronts to them that said Tennessee Volunteers or any of that kind of stuff so I got to sit at the edge of the court and watch uh, uh, Ray Mears coach about 10 feet to my right and uh, Adolph Rupp might be on the other end of the court and uh, uh, so I, I think it probably was pretty hard I mean I guess I was going to be a sports writer or a basketball coach uh, uh, just based on all of that experience who uh, who would have been some of the the players either at Tennessee or at other teams notable players that you got to see when you were young well, I, I um, the ten, the great Tennessee players. Were, my favorite player ever was a was a guard named Danny Schultz. Uh, there's going to be people named here that the folks that listen to this, and I'm sure this will grow dramatically here, Wes. But uh, he was a little guard, and, and he was a he was a great ball handler and point guard. And and Tennessee actually played a point guard, which was probably unusual in that time. Most most teams had two guard offenses back then, and uh, and he was a point guard and a great shooter. And uh, uh, another great player was A. W. Davis, who was an All American on that team. Uh, uh, we all remember the Kentucky team that ended up losing to Texas Western in the finals. Uh, they were actually undefeated. End of the season, came to Knoxville and. Uh, uh, and I was sitting right there on the floor, and Tennessee beat them for their first loss of the year, and then the second loss was that championship game. Uh, Ron Whidbey was a great player on that team. Ron Whidbey went on to become a punter for the Dallas Cowboys uh, for a long, long time. Uh, so Bill Justice, who lives in Nashville now, was a, was a great player, point guard named Billy Hahn. I could go on and on with, with Tennessee players that I enjoyed. Uh, watching so uh, Cotton Nash is a name from a long time ago a great Kentucky player uh, I wasn't I was no longer sitting on the press table I was an usher by the time that Pete Maravich came up to play as a freshman he had freshman teams you weren't eligible till you were a sophomore during his career and uh, but in LSU did not ordinarily come with their freshman team too far to go Tennessee would play Vanderbilt in Kentucky and Georgia uh, with freshman games, but they wouldn't travel to LSU or vice versa, but they brought 
Maravich up because he was already so so much talk about him. So I got to see him play as a freshman and then get, got to see him throughout his career. So when you were there under the, the scores table, 10 feet away from Coach Mears, as you said, did you catch yourself watching how he coached or the, the tactics or were you just enthralled in the moment of being an eight-year-old kid there watching these college athletes? I'm sure, and I can't recall, honestly, Wes, how many years I sat there. Uh, that was where I watched the games from, several. Uh, and I'm sure as I grew older, uh, I might have uh, thought more about what they're saying and what they're doing. But that's pretty young to be thinking about uh, how you coach. I think it was more just the fact that, you know, it's like going downtown and at a Predators game and getting to sit on the glass, you know, except this was even closer than the glass. And uh, and I just fell in love with the game. I mean, I started playing when I was really young. And, uh, you know, I think my career peaked when I was about nine years old. I was pretty good when I was nine. When, when you were that age or even into your teenage years, who were some of your childhood heroes, be they sports or anybody out in the world? They were probably all sports. I'm not sure I knew anybody out in the world <laughs> when I was young. I was all into sports, and I, I didn't I didn't play football. I did I did uh, start to play youth football a couple of different years, and I think I lasted about one or two practices both times. And just practicing football was no fun. <laughs> it was no fun, you know. Touch football in the side yard was great. I loved it. Uh, in fact, all through college, me and a buddy had a, had a two-man touch football team, and we'd take on all comers, and we had a 40-yard field. We had it all marked off, and, we, uh, and, and it was a blast. I loved uh, throwing and catching, uh, but I didn't like getting tackled. Um, so played a lot of baseball. Uh, up until I was about 13, and then I was a freshman in high school. Uh, as I got to be a freshman in high school, I had to choose between uh, playing baseball in the spring or golf in the spring on the high school team, and I chose golf. Getting no curveballs in golf, so I was not. <laughs> I love fielding, but I didn't like those curveballs. Uh, so, uh, anyway, I didn't answer your question about favorites. I, uh, I was eight years old when uh, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle had their uh, run at Babe Ruth's record in 1961, and uh, as you can imagine, there was very little television sports at that time, uh, but they even put those games on especially as they were coming down the stretch. Uh, Mickey Mantle was certainly my favorite athlete nationally at that time. Uh, and the Yankees have since been my favorite team forever, solely because that's who I saw play that year. I'm sure there were no there were no Southern teams to be for. Uh, if you lived in Knoxville, it was maybe Cincinnati would be the biggest one. Uh, I, as I was in high school, my favorite professional basketball player was Walt Frazier for the New York Knicks. Uh, he was pretty cool about the way he played he he played uh, he was a great player but he never appeared to be in a hurry 
take for example a guy like Roger Federer who's so graceful on the tennis court right now and never seems to have to be in a hurry and Rafa Nadal who's just as good a tennis player but seems like he's scurrying back and forth like crazy just to get to all those balls that's the way Walt Frazier played like like uh, Federer right on the tennis court he just he glided around and uh and then he wore these snazzy suits and hats and everything. And I guess when I was in high school, I thought that was pretty cool. So, uh, you've just chosen not to adopt his fashion since. You know, I I did early on in high school. I would, you know, obviously we all do stupid stuff when we're in high school. But you know, it didn't last. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, gosh. Football-wise, I was, of course, I was always a big Tennessee fan. Uh, uh, my dad actually covered SEC football, so he was rarely at Tennessee games, but my mom had a couple of seats, and uh, so I went and watched a bunch of great Tennessee football games in my boyhood and, and uh, uh, enjoyed enjoyed that a lot. I still I still like college football more than I do professional football, but, but I was a... Johnny Unitas was probably my favorite early guy, and then like Bob Greasy for the Dolphins and Paul Warfield. And I don't know if anybody will remember a Detroit Lions guy named Lim Barney, but he was a defensive back and a great punt returner. And to me still, watching somebody catch a punt and weave their way all the way to the goal line, that's what I liked about him. So uh, there's a name out of nowhere. Hopefully uh, we have a lot of Lim Barney. Fans on the podcast. <laughs> He's probably got a podcast. <laughs> he probably does. Everybody does these days. It seems like. Um, well, once uh, once you got a little older, and I guess went through high school, got into college. When did you when did you know you wanted to be a coach? I, I'm not sure. I can recall ever thinking about anything else. Um, but I don't know. I guess my closest best answer to that would be when I was in high school I started coaching a team a, you know a, a rec league team a junior team whatever it was when when uh, uh, that played on Saturday mornings and, uh, and and I coached some little league baseball teams things like that and just just that and, it, and I also started working basketball camps for coach Mears after I mean I went to those camps my whole life and then worked those. So just just um, watching guys, watching young kids at that time respond to your coaching and and uh, get excited about playing hard and trying to win and the the the, the whole esprit de corps that a team brings uh, was just uh, I loved it. Uh, Still, still do that part of it. That's that's still easily my favorite part of coaching is is the team and all that goes on within a team. Uh, uh, so I don't know that I, I, you know, heaven knows what I was teaching them to do offensively or defensively or anything else. That all comes much later when you can. I can even remember playing as a high school player. I, I got. I played a little bit of varsity when I was a freshman. I played a lot of varsity when I was a sophomore. But I can distinctly remember it was my junior year before I really started seeing the floor and 
understanding how offenses work and what works offensively. Uh, so, you know, I would, I don't want any, anybody analyzing my offense from my uh, junior league basketball teams. Your uh, first coaching job, if I'm not mistaken, was the assistant coaching position at Maryville that eventually turned into a head coaching position. Tell me a little bit about those first few years now, of coaching at that level. Well, I'll even back up a little bit. I, w- I went to, um, uh, I was, uh, I thought I was a lot better than I was, Wes. And uh, so I-, I hung around hoping that Kentucky or North Carolina would offer me a scholarship and ended up going to Central Florida Community College uh, to play down there for a year. And uh, didn't play very much. Uh, didn't like that part of it, and and then transferred back to to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and was just a quote unquote regular student without basketball in my life uh, for a couple of years. Then the NCAA changed the rules to allow uh, freshmen to play uh, on the varsity, and Tennessee decided to uh, do a to have a junior varsity team, which would be composed of some some um, scholarship kids that weren't going to get to play very much on the varsity, and some walk-ons. And I, I had continued to work Coach Mears' basketball camp in the summer all through the time. And and um, A. W. Davis, I mentioned his name earlier, is a great player. was uh, was an assistant coach at that time for Coach Mears, and he asked me to come walk on and be the point guard on the junior varsity team which I did for a year, uh, you know, got to, you know, I could fool a lot of people because I've got pictures of me in a Tennessee basketball uniform. And uh, I actually practiced for the junior varsity from, say, two to four, and then practiced for the varsity from, I don't even want to tell you how long they practiced, three hours. So I would have five hours on the court. Uh, the next year, I could have played one, but as a fifth year, I didn't want to play junior varsity again, and I just was a student assistant coach there, uh, still practiced with the varsity. And that's that's the Bernard King, Ernie Grunfeld teams. Uh, and then um, and then I was named a graduate assistant at, at UT. Well, after that happened, a, a friend of mine, uh, older uh, than me, so kind of a coaching friend, Billy Henry, was named the AD, basketball coach, baseball coach at Maryville College, and he asked me to come help him, and I had accepted the graduate assistant's job at UT, so I went and asked Coach Mears if I could find a way to do both of those, and he said yes, and I don't know if this story is going to interest anybody listening to this, but, but then the NCAA had a rule that you had to be in your fifth year to be a graduate assistant. I was... I had been five years going through UT because I went to junior college, never went to summer school. Uh, and I, so I was in my sixth year, so they, they pulled my graduate assistantship at UT because they had to, but I had the Maryville College thing. And in fact, Billy Henry had to, had to teach at Baptist College, uh, which is now Charleston Southern in South Carolina, the fall semester because he'd committed to it and so I actually had a lot of practices by myself with that team and even coached two games by myself 
at that age. Uh, and, and, and because it was just he and I, and he was there late, I, I got to do an awful lot. I learned a lot by stuff being thrust on me, and I'm sure I wasn't ready for it, but I didn't know that. I had enough energy and enthusiasm and passion for what I was doing that uh, uh, that made it through, made a grand total of $5,000 uh, as a, my second year as an assistant there, and then Coach Henry promoted me to head coach, and I made 8000 uh, as the head as the head college basketball coach was there two years learned a lot uh, our team got better my first uh, season we were we started two and thirteen and uh, I started thinking about what other things I could do in life probably uh, but we finished one six for last nine and went fifteen eleven the second year uh, got better. Uh, and then that, and then I had an opportunity to go to Tennessee Tech as an assistant. So that's too much talking, Wes. Ask a question. No, that's great. <laughs> well, it's, it's <laughs> funny you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording about Malcolm Gladwell, and Malcolm Gladwell has uh, this. I don't know that if it, that it's his unique concept, but the ten thousand hour rule. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but he essentially asserts that it takes somebody ten thousand hours of. Um, doing something until they get to the point of mastery of that skill. So whether it's swinging a golf club, um, writing songs, playing the piano, coaching, gotcha. that if you can get to 10,000 hours of doing that skill, then you're as close to mastery of that skill as you'll be. And it sounds like from all the different things you had opportunities to observe and see and watch and then be a part of and have thrust on you, um, you certainly had a, a head start in terms of those hours, uh, maybe than someone who came along later in life and said they wanted to be a coach in their late twenties or thirties or something. Like uh, that. Yeah, I, there's no question. I had the advantage of um, of of what my dad's position put me in. I mean, I could go watch practice sometimes, and uh, uh, again, you know, I, I think I think more than anything, just that access is what got me excited about it. I don't, I doubt I learned very much when I was 10, 11, 12 years old about coaching. Uh, you know, you, you do start learning as you're in high school. Um, I think um, a lot of times you learn things you're not going to do, Wes. And, and you know, you, you, you played for me, and I'm not saying this, you know, the reason it's true. If you had turned around and started coaching, I'm sure there are some things that you would have said, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Uh, uh, one thing that, uh, that I think Coach Mears did, and, and my high school coach, Pat Robinette, played for Coach Mears. In fact, he was my favorite player in 1965. Um, but they practiced a, a long time. Uh, and Coach Mears would even have a daily meeting before practice that could last 30 minutes, and then he'd go practice three hours. And so Coach Robinette, that was his frame of reference, and I, our high school team practiced a long time. And uh, I saw both uh, the Tennessee teams I was a part of as a student assistant and a practice player, uh, and I saw our high school team uh, lose enthusiasm it got to be more like a job. Uh, 
And by the time the most important part of the season rolled around, um, I won't say that they didn't care if they won or lost, but it just wasn't where you wanted to be. And so if you did lose, it was finally over for a while. And I don't, I, you know, I hope our I hope our players here at Belmont rarely think of it that way. So that's just an example sure. of, uh, and, and I'm sure Casey Alexander down the street at Lipscomb uh, does does some things specifically or doesn't do some things specifically because he played for me and coached with me for a long time and uh, he didn't think it worked. He didn't think it was the right way to do it. Uh, that's just that's just natural. As you look back on your career both here at Belmont and, and your career prior to Belmont, what are the things that you took from your earlier experiences and are still applying to today? Yeah, there, there are there are quite a few. Um, Coach Mears was uh, really big on several things, and a lot of them are off the court things, really. Um, I mean, he, he, I don't think even he could do this today. But like, we had to wear a coat and tie at pregame meal, home or away. Uh, he was he was just really big about how you represented your school. Uh, and looking first class, doing things first class, and uh, I think I, I think that resonated with me big time. Uh, and uh, and then and then Billy Henry, when I coached with him at Maryville College, uh, would talk about and you heard this from me about about leaving the locker room when we went and played somewhere. Uh, better than it was when we walked into it, and uh, I think uh, I think when you do things like that, uh, people remember that, and they uh, and, and I hope the whole culmination of my career uh, will end up being more about the way our teams acted and the way we represented Belmont uh, than championships or wins. Uh, Although I desperately want those when I'm coaching in a game, uh, so I, it was it was a lot of that kind of thing that I that I took. I started I started my coaching career with with Coach Mears's offense because that's really all I knew, uh, and uh, and it was not nearly what we look like now. Obviously, the the biggest part of your career has been spent here at Belmont. Tell me how you ended up here at Belmont. Well, the, the, you know, things just have to fall together. Um, I, uh, the, the, I guess, I'm not sure I've ever talked publicly about one part of it, but I, I went, uh, I went to Tennessee Tech for three years as assistant, and I missed being a head coach. And I didn't care what level I was at; I just missed having my own team. Uh, I, you know, I won't say that I'm cut out to be a head coach more than an assistant, but I sure liked it more. And uh, and I think there are guys that may be cut out for either or, and some that can do both and have. Um, but the job at Lincoln Memorial University in, in East Tennessee, actually on the right where Tennessee and Kentucky and Virginia all come together, basically, come to a gap. Um, 
had an opening and I applied for it and I met the lady, Elaine Minton was the AD and I met her at Cookville McDonald's and she was on her way to bring the tennis team of LMU to Nashville for the district championship and interviewed with her sitting there at the Cookville McDonald's and uh, got that job. Uh, was there three years. In my second year we played, we actually played uh, Belmont three times. Uh, we, we, we scheduled a home and away with them, and then we ended up being in a tournament, I think, at Tennessee Wesleyan. Um, can't remember for sure. Uh, and I think we beat them by 20, 20, and 30 in those three games. Um, and uh, the next year, uh, Don Purdy, who was the coach here, um, announced that he was going to resign, retire from coaching uh, in February sometime. Uh, and, and when I came here to play the game here, uh, even though it doesn't look like it did then, I still, I still thought there was great potential. The fact that it was in Nashville uh, and the fact that the school was doing well in terms of enrollment and growing. Uh, and I was really fortunate that a good friend of mine was Ron Bargatze. Uh, we both loved the game of golf, and, and he was the head coach at Austin P when I was assistant at Tennessee Tech, and we, we'd talk golf all the time back then, and uh, we just became really good friends and were before. And, and uh, Ron had played for Kenny Sidwell, uh, who was the dean of students, who was the chair of the committee, uh, and uh, so, it's uh, there's just so many things that had to fall into place, uh, but I was I was named the coach here before our season at LMU was over. I came down and interviewed and accepted the job, and uh, I just you know it it, it um, there's so much about the whole the whole picture uh, that that I loved about it, uh, and uh, I guess backing up. I even considered uh, leaving coaching my second year at LMU because I like I liked the idea of Nashville a lot and the TWSAA had an opening and there was an assistant executive director to Ronnie Carter and applied for that job and uh, didn't get it and was pretty disappointed uh, that I didn't and uh, can only imagine now uh, you, you hear a lot about unanswered prayers and. Uh, you know, I can't imagine as good as that might have been working for a guy like Ronnie Carter and, and being in athletics couldn't have had the career I've been able to enjoy. Yeah. So you would have come to Belmont and Nashville in 1986. What was Nashville like? What was Belmont like 30 plus years ago? Certainly not what it is today. No, what do you remember about Nashville as a city? Hardly anything is, you know. But Nashville certainly would fall into that category of a, of a city that that was, uh, you know, it still has it still has such a great, almost small town feel to it, even though it's growing and growing and growing in terms of the way that you're treated and the way that people are in this city. Uh, but it was not, it, you know, the 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 area around Belmont was not not great neighborhood uh, you know where the gulch is today was non-existent it was train tracks down there uh, you know, 
Germantown area would be very much like the 12 South area would be very much like East Nashville and now those are those are the places to be and go and live um, uh, you wouldn't be caught probably on it at second and Broadway late at night at that time and now uh, there's only a, I was there the other night and we had an official visit and had some guys down there eating and uh, I, I'm going to just guess there was about six million people walking around downtown. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, so uh, Most of them bachelorette parties. Uh, there was a lot of that going on and uh, all kinds of vehicles carrying people around shouting things. Uh, but um, Belmont was, um, you know, the neat thing about Belmont, Wes, that, that, uh, that, that whether it was intentional or not is, it, the the one side of our campus still looks almost exactly like it did when I got here. Uh, the west side, I guess now, uh, we, we they did take down a, a one building that actually opened that space up more that was there, uh, a humanities building that was kind of a a twin of of the uh, science building uh, that still still stands. Uh, but uh, but the, you know the 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 addition of student housing uh, is just is just helped our school in so many ways and certainly helped our basketball program in terms of number of kids that come to games because they live on campus. When I first got here, I think we had 800 kids on campus, and w once you came and then there, so there was about 1,700 commuting students. They weren't going to come back and come to games. And now we have so many students that can come to our games, and they do very well. the The, the quality of the buildings uh, is remarkable. Uh, if there's a if there is a school in the country that that does a better job with landscaping, then I need I need to go see it just so I can see the landscaping because ours is phenomenal. Uh, and you know, as we, we're sitting in my office, so to speak, and we look out, and there's there there, there were no the the uh, international market was there and that's that's it really now there's places to go walk and eat and coffee shops and uh, it's Hillsborough uh, Village has grown dramatically right down the street 12 South was nothing like 12 South is now for going down there and and shopping or eating or whatever you do so uh, all of that's helped our program in dramatic ways uh, I think the city of Nashville's Certainly, the growth of our school, the beauty of our school, but uh, the the city of Nashville's growth is all sort of combined to give us a a leg up on a lot of people in recruiting. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine there's a certain population of Belmont fans, and probably even fans of the program that that don't live here in Nashville that aren't familiar with the NAI days. Yeah. Um, Talk a little bit about what, what those years were like um, before Belmont became a Division One program. Well, again, going back to 1986, LMU was an NAIA school. Uh, the, la the, the last two of the three seasons I was there, we, we won our side, the East, and, and we played uh, David Lipscomb College at the time in the championship game, and they beat us both years and went to Kansas City for the NAIA tournament. Belmont had never been to the NAIA tournament when I took the job. And uh, and then in 1986 when I took the job, Lipscomb had gone on to win the national championship. So 
it was arguably the the finest program in the NAIA. NAIA is a roughly then was an equivalent to NCAA Division II. Since that time, so many schools have moved over to Division II that the NAIA is not the the, the as strong an organization in terms of basketball teams and programs as it was then. There were a lot of really good ones there, a lot of several of them that have gone Division One, like we have. But um, uh, but it, it just um, uh, it was it was it was going to be a mountain to climb with Lipscomb right down the street, and, and my approach was to uh, kind of eliminate the Lipscomb part of the equation in the beginning, and we we've got you know, in fact the first year I was here, Treveca went to the Elite Eight. They won the, the league and went, and they were they were really good. Uh, and then, then you got Union, and you got Christian Brothers, and you got a lot of other strong programs in our league and in the West Side that we need to pass them, you know, one by one. So um, we had a 500 year, I think, in the league and and overall. Maybe my first year here, and uh, we were seven and seven going into conference play the second year. And you know, there there are games that uh, that I, I don't know that that have such a lasting impact in terms of where a program goes. I think I'm going to jump way ahead, but when we played Lipscomb in the championship game in 2006 in, in Johnson City, then uh, you know Justin Hare makes a three-point play to tie the game. We win in overtime. Where, do, where does our program go from there? Where does their program go from there? Uh, well, we played our opening game in my second year here in the conference play was against Treveca coming off their Elite Eight season. He was at Stripling Gym, our gym at the time. And uh, they had a player go to the line with two free throws with timeout. I mean, so game's over uh, and the game's tied. And he missed both those free throws. And we won in overtime, and we went on to go 15 and one in the league that year, and, and gained all of that confidence that has gone on since then. Literally, confidence in the program and what Belmont basketball can do might have started on those two misses. Uh, who knows? I'd like to think that maybe we would have done okay, you know, if we if we'd lost that game, but. There's so much about getting over the hump of from mediocrity to being good, and it, and and sometimes one game seems to make that happen. Uh, we we went to Lipscomb that year and, and late in the, in the year and beat them on their floor in order to tie them for the for the conference championship, and then we get upset by Bethel on the last second tip in in the tournament that year. The next year was the watershed year because. Lipscomb was phenomenally good. We went into the semifinal game of District 24. They were 38 and one, and uh, they'd beaten us three times that year. And this was our fourth matchup, uh, and they uh, Philip Hutchison and Darren Henry and great players and great team. And we uh, Joe Bailey scored 58 points, and I, I don't. 103 to 98 or something in that range 
was the final score. We beat them. And then, ironically, LMU comes to our place uh, to play the championship game in District 24. Uh, the play, most of them players I'd recruited um, and, and uh, to take our first trip to the national tournament. That's all, Wes, that's all I ever wanted then, you know. To, to imagine that I'd ever coach a team in the NCAA tournament was as far-fetched as winning the Masters mm-hmm. for me, winning the Masters. And uh, so it was a huge, huge game, huge night. Um, can't rem- you know, the Lipscomb game in Johnson City that I've already mentioned and, and this game, uh, I think, are the two most nervous days in my life leading up to a game. And all of them are nervous, uh, but those two were incredible because of the what was at stake and uh had a good game and uh i think joe only got about 35 or 6 that game and and we won and went went out there and and we lost our first game in typical uh typical fashion of never been there don't know what to expect uh kind of thing but uh we went on to go five times in the 10 years that we were in aia uh and uh and had had two runs to the final four. Had a great team in '95 that was 37 and two. Uh, lost to Western Kentucky in the NCAA tournament team, and then lost to Birmingham Southern in the semifinals. So, you know, a lot of people don't think about it. I I, I often think that uh, those teams uh, get sort of the short end of the stick in the history of Belmont basketball because of the Division One era and all that, all that goes with that. But uh, those teams were just as important to me and still are as the ones that came at the Division One time. Those games meant as much to me to win as the ones do in Division One, and to our players. Uh, great line is the the big time is where you are, and and that's uh, that's how we felt about that. So. Uh, it was it was a great time, and I, I was, uh, you know, I was I thought all I'd ever be would be a small college basketball coach. It's interesting along those lines when the discussion was being had on campus about does Belmont become a Division One program? Were you fully on board with that? I was I was fully on board with whatever Doctor Trout thought was best for the university. Uh, I, you know, I, that that is. And I, I appreciated the fact that I had input to that, that he cared uh, what I thought about it a lot. I appreciated that. Uh, but but I, I'm pretty sure I told him what I would again today is that that's an institutional decision. That That's not even really an athletic decision in a lot of ways. And, and because of what he told me about it, he, he, he felt like Belmont had grown to the spot that when he looked around the South and he saw Samford and Mercer and Stetson and Furman and Wofford had just gone Division One. College of Charleston had just gone Division One. Davidson obviously was Division One. Schools that he thought Belmont now belonged in the same neighborhood of them as an educational institution, and they were all Division One. And he just he just felt like that was a next growing step for our university, and. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't remember it. I remember people thinking it wasn't a good idea, uh, and that we would f- fail uh, in that area. But 
I don't I don't really remember there being a great deal of controversy about it. Uh, uh, he was pretty steadfast in, in thinking it was the best thing for our university. Everybody at Belmont had a lot of confidence in Dr. Trout and the decisions he'd already made. Uh, and I, I just feel fortunate that we were able to, uh, and you were on the front end of that in the first few years when we took a, we took a few beatings, Wes. Uh, uh, I don't know the definition of few, but we made me a little more than a few. I think I, I still, still have some, some bruises <laughs> from some of those games. But, um, Emotional bruises. But it, it, it is, is turned out to be a good thing for the school. Yeah. Did you then at that moment, or do you now, or have you ever had sort of a vision for the program of where you wanted it to be or what you wanted it to look like? Or has it just sort of happened as, as it happened? I'm, I'm not a vision guy. I'm not a goals guy, really. I mean, you know, I want, I want us to win the regular season championship this year. I want us to go to the NCAA tournament. But I, I think I think the best way to, to get there is just do the best you can day in and day out. And uh, so, you know, I don't – Maybe that's maybe that's a good thing in some ways, and maybe it's not in others. I think, you know, if you ask Dr. Fisher uh, if he had a vision for this school, then he probably did for it to look like it looks right now. Uh, or maybe he just wanted to do the best he could every day he came into work. I, obviously, I've got you know we've we're going to meet here this morning about about what we're going to do prior to regular practice starting and and so you you got plans uh but uh some of that's controlled by the university uh you know belmont's in a position now that if it wanted to move forward athletically uh and go to a larger conference with more prestige and and a lot of things it, it probably could do that uh and again nashville and the growth of this university along with athletic success would would make that a real possibility uh, but that again that's that's at a higher level than than Scott Corley as our AD or certainly myself as a basketball coach as you think back to when you were an NAI program and then there were the transitional years as you mentioned when I played up to now um, what are some things that have changed in terms of, the, of your mindset of running the program, how you, how you recruit, how you, or has there been much change? Yeah, there, you know, we, we were, first of all, Bel, Belmont attracts, um, more easily attracts uh, a certain type of student, and therefore I think a student athlete than, than other schools would, not, not saying better, just, just certainly the the academic reputation uh, has a lot to do with that, uh, and so when I came here, I recruited different kind of student athletes than I was able to recruit at Lincoln Memorial University, which serves another pu- purpose and does very well at that. But it's a not rural; it's a mountain community, and uh, uh, so uh, it it does you get a great education at LMU, uh, but. So we, I think we try to do a good job of fitting the, the profile of a Belmont student and the guys that we're recruiting because I, I do think that schools that are very strong academically can make mistakes by trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. 
and bring somebody in who's going to really struggle academically slash socially. Uh, and so I think we identified that on the front end. Uh, but as we as we made the move to Division One West, <clears throat> uh, you being the being the exception to this, uh, you know we we had to, we were going to get marginal Division One players, and and some of those weren't going to be as good as students. Uh, you know, no nobody's going to come to a school that has zero chance of going to the NCAA tournament if they're being recruited by any significant schools that can do that. And, I mean, you made that choice uh, knowing that you might have one year, I think, to, to do that uh, over, uh, over at least one school, if not others, that were already there. But that, that was the exception. And uh, so we made, we made more mistakes in recruiting on the front end of trying to put this thing together. Uh, but, and, and, you know, you're sitting here and it's easy to say, but I'd say it to anybody else. I mean, you, you were an academic All-American. You, uh, you were a great scholar-athlete, and you, you started the whole uh, model of the fact that we now have more academic All-Americans since you've been here than any other Division One school has. And uh, in our team GPA, 3.0, higher, 18 straight years, those kind of things mean something to not only the student athlete, but certainly their parents as we go through the recruiting process. So now, with our success on the floor and the success that our players have had in the classroom and, and off the floor in other areas, just leadership positions and, and mission work and the things they've done, then, uh, then that appeals to parents who care what kind of environment that kids are going into, but it also, the success on the floor has allowed us to to go out and go further and and simply recruit guys that are higher profile players that we couldn't have gotten when we were recruiting you. Yeah. Well, I, I, one of the things I've loved doing since I graduated is just to come back and watch, watch the games, meet the new players, and um, I had a, a, a decent career here, but I, I do think from time to time as I'm watching some of the current guys and current teams play, could I have played on that team? Could I have played with those players? And I think that's probably your goal is to always be getting better players. Um, and it, it's just it's, it's just remarkable how, how far the program has come, I think, in such a short amount of time. Um, well, we're not going to try to start over again. I, I can tell you that. It's been it's, – it's been – Phenomenal experience. Uh, uh, the I think the uh, the fact that we have maintained uh, the same you know we had very little staff turnover. Same guys have been here a long time. Casey takes the Stetson job. Roger Eastman goes with him. We we bring in two guys. They stay here for you know that kind of thing along with the the same kind of. Uh, Continuity in players and not losing players like happens in Division One basketball consistently these days uh, have have really helped us because we got guys here for four years and the same guys and they understand the system and and uh, you could have played on any team we've had but there's no question that uh, that uh, we've got more guys that have. Uh, greater athleticism, quickness, skills than we were able to recruit when we started. But we, 
we started we started knowing okay we're gonna have a hard time getting division one athletes let's get guys that are a little bit underrated because they're but they're skill players and they can shoot the basketball and know how to play and that just you coming here and the guys adam adam mark steve draben adam son coming here right after you it, you know it just then then we got a few more after that and a few more after that and we end up with uh with justin Hare and and andy wick and matthew dodson and that group that got us three straight uh ncaa tournament appearances yeah when you think of your role as a head coach um if you can prioritize these things or maybe throw in others you know you want your program to represent belmont well you want to graduate student athletes you want to win games you want to develop the character of the young men you want to develop assistant coaches that go on to have opportunities again throw others in there but how do you is there a hierarchy um of thought there you just again try to do the best you can every day with (laughs) that that'd be the easiest answer i think you know there there are some things that are just kind of non-negotiables and and certainly the quality of student athlete the quality of person that that uh that a guy that we're recruiting is 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 huge to our program and therefore we're more patient in the process we don't offer scholarships as early or as often as a lot of people do we want a lot of evaluation both on the floor and and face to face and through the phone and talking to coaches and and watching how they interact with their teammates and with officials and and how they interact or how coachable are they to help us make good decisions there but the other thing is they they've got to be a good enough player in our mind to improve our program too so not, nothing is more important than recruiting i just i just hope that we have some some aspects of our recruiting model that are uh, that it doesn't matter how talented somebody is if they don't if they don't want to go to class if they don't want a degree they're not going to be a good teammate if they're not going to practice hard all those things if that doesn't happen if they're not that kind of person and player then then we'll move on uh, and we probably lose some guys every now and then that could that could uh, have some big games and and maybe help us win more games I don't know but I've got to think that we have one of, if not the most, unselfish group of young men who play for one another and care about one another on a daily basis as any Division I basketball program in the country. And that is, that's, that's a wonderful situation for a coaching staff to be in. Uh, I, I think, um, I think, I think, the way that our team, once it gets here, represents the university is as important to me, more important to me than the championships and the wins. Uh, there, there is, um, but you don't have to give up one for the other. And I think a lot of people think you do. Uh, but when we hear the comments, and, and we heard them when you were here, you know what I'm talking about, and you were here and worked here and traveled with us uh, from from bus drivers or, or the lady that waited on the table for the players or the people in the hotels that observed our team or the the security officer at the University of Georgia that was watching, that was with our team the whole time. And then as we got ready to board the bus after we won the game in the NIT, said, I've been doing this for 20 years and that's the most well-behaved 
bunch of guys I've ever seen. I said, would you go tell them that? And, and they had him come on the bus and say that because they need to know that matters to people and it's noticed. Uh, and uh, so that all of that is um, sometimes lost in our profession, in my opinion, uh, too often. And, and coaches seem sometimes to be afraid uh, to, uh, uh, I don't know, just... The, the, you know, I'm 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 not big on the cool factor, Wes, and uh, so you know how guys look and dress and act and talk, uh, and that kind of thing matters matters to me. Always will. Doesn't some coaches? Maybe they're just that way, or maybe they're afraid if they clamp down too hard, those guys aren't going to play for them. I don't know, but uh, it's uh, that stuff is. Is, is meant a lot to me uh, and uh, I hope is the thing that is most remembered about our teams. As you think back over your career, and I'm not going to ask you to just give me one or two, but you've already alluded to the NIA game with Lipscomb, the instant um, ASUN tournament game, the first time you, we beat Lipscomb. Um, but just what are some memorable moments that as you think back on your career really stand out? Uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll even, I'll, if it's okay, I'll go back to Merrill College because yeah. uh, I didn't know, if, you know, I told you we were 2-13 and 13, and then we were 8-16 at the end of that year and and uh, the next year we uh, uh, we played. Carson Newman is in East Tennessee and it's an NA, it was an NAIA powerhouse at the time and it, it's a Division two program now and Merrill College is a Division three school with, when I was there, uh, not much to show for it basketball-wise ever, ever. I mean, when we won 15 games, that was the most in 30-something years. Uh, so um, we, we actually beat Carson Newman twice in one year. And the, ga- the game up at their place, winning that game was, uh, you know, it was huge. It was huge. We weren't, we didn't belong there. We didn't, uh, we weren't competitive. We shouldn't be competitive with them, never been competitive with them, at least in recent memory. And, uh, uh, coach Henry, Billy Henry was the athletic director. He named me the head coach, but he he took us all to Regis Restaurant after that, the steakhouse in downtown Knoxville. And uh, so I can remember a lot of nice post game meals, but that's one of them I remember. Um, here, um, you know, I've talked about the Treveca uh, game that the kid missed two free throws and we won it. And then and then the, the, the game at Lipscomb was huge. The next year we played Lipscomb at Vanderbilt. Uh, I moved our home game over there, uh, and uh, and I knew that could that could cost us, and it turns out, theoretically it did. If we'd have won the game here, we would have tied them for regular season. I think they went 18-0, we went 16-2. Uh, but it was, it was worth the loss, frankly, because uh, it filled the place up. Uh, Women played before us, and then we played. And I think during the women's game, they announced it was a sellout. George Plaster, uh, who works here now, was the was the PA guy for that game. Uh, that was a spectacular moment and feeling that, and it's, I'm sure it's still the the biggest attendance game of any small college basketball game ever. Uh, that was that was huge. Um, you know, heck, Wes, again, things things that seem small at the time, but uh, 
you know that your senior year, we didn't know whether we were going to get in the tournament. And we had to go beat Campbell. And then if I remember it correctly, it was Florida Atlantic that had to beat Stetson at Stetson in order for us to get in the tournament. And, uh, and when, when we were, that was the early days of cell phones, and we're trying to get that score. And we were in two tour buses coming back from Campbell. It was an afternoon game, so it was their game was at night, and it was dark, and we're on the interstate, and we find out we win. And both buses pull over off the interstate, and we're banging on the side of the buses. And, you know, that was making that tournament. Making that tournament was, I'm sure for you, Today it would be it, it, it would it would rank as a major disappointment perhaps, but at that point just getting in that tournament, and then we went down to Central Florida and played uh, Georgia State and played them down to the wire and almost beat them a one eight game. Uh, so that that was a, that's a memorable moment is as minor as it would seem to some people. Uh, certainly the the Lipscomb game that got us in the tournament was as big as ever. The the first the first trip to the NCAA tournament. Uh, the game wasn't anything to be excited about for sure. The Final Four team just almost shut us out, seemed like. Uh, bad, bad, uh, no no plan B on offense and four out, one in, one gonna work uh, that that night. And uh, we I think we scored 39 points. So, um, but that trip, that first time to go through that whole thing was hard to beat. Uh, you know, our, 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 um, our 2010 and 11 team, well, the Duke game, the Duke game in 2008 in the NCAA tournament where, where we lost by one and really could have, should have won the game, had the ball with less than a minute to go over the lead. Uh, that put us over the top nationally in a lot of ways. Third straight year in the tournament and almost beating Duke. And um, it was it was a huge boon for our program interest wise and everything fast forward three years 2010-11 we have a team that goes 30-5 and five. four of those losses are, are major teams uh, power conference NCAA tournament teams and led the, led the whole NCAA in scoring margin uh, uh, that was a fantastically fun year to coach a team and that's another run of three straight years in the NCAA tournament. Uh, the the buzzer beaters that had beaten Murray State twice in the LVC tournament are just actually three buzzer beaters in two games. Karan Johnson made two of them in the same game, and then and then Taylor Barnett made the one that beat their really great team, and 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 we went. So uh, you know, gazillions of moments in between that that seem minor to some people. Those are just prominent ones. Way back to NAI days, we had to go to Christian Brothers and win the game against a good team to win the league, and we did it. Uh, uh, you know, it was just games that seemed bigger that were that people wouldn't even know about right now. Yeah, I can recall as a player, um, we we won a few games that I think people didn't think we could. Um, and I remember beating TSU at TSU. I remember beating Middle at Middle and beating Austin P. And um, I can remember you coming in the locker room and just telling us, as people who weren't, may not have been from here, didn't right. know the history of Belmont and where we'd come from, that we didn't have any idea how big of a win that was right. for the program. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, I think it's, it's 
in in a city like Nashville, Music City, where you know people come here to become famous musicians, so often that happens, and we think it's an overnight success, and we don't you don't often see the overnight successes that are. 10, 15, 20 years right. in the making. And um, there's probably a, a, a group of people out out in the world who think Belmont sort of came out of nowhere and have been great, and maybe that's the case, but they don't realize all everything that went into getting us where we are today. They don't know the bruises you've got to get us there, so it's kind of what you're saying in a way. So we, right. we did lose some 50-point games in your career, but we had some big wins, and... Of course, the near loss at Mississippi State was a was a tough one to take mm-hmm. for sure. And, uh, we we had a year where we uh, I think we lost four or five games with the ball in the air at the buzzer when we were tighter ahead, uh, and uh, and then and then came back to have a winning year that year. Uh, that that was the first year that kind of told us we could do it, and we took a step backwards after that, but. But, but that year kind of gave us an idea that we can we can make this work. Yeah. So I mean, you've been coaching for thirty plus years now. I don't know the specific number, um, but it's no secret that you're probably closer to retiring than than you've ever been. Hopefully, it's my second year. I was hope, closer yeah. to retiring. Hopefully, you coach uh, as long as you want to. But have you given any thought to what's next? Like once you once you do hang it up, have you given any been been able to give any thought to that? Every day, yeah. <laughs> no, you know, I think uh, uh, I, you know that I'm I'm a guy that is that's not um, just all about coaching a basketball team. I mean, I've got I've got a lot of interests, and I've played golf my whole life, and and my wife Cheryl and I have played tennis together a lot in the last few years, and uh, I have a daughter that lives in Oklahoma that's going to have a baby in a month, and. Uh, uh, there's a, there's going to be a, yeah Andrea's going to have Grandpa, Papa, Grandpa, Papa. Uh, yeah, it's not be. up to me. Okay. Whatever comes out of his mouth, <laughs> okay. I guess. Uh, but um, uh, but you know I, I'll be okay when the time comes, and I'll know when the time comes, and I'm just I'm really going year by year. But I'll uh, you know I, I want I do want some healthy years to to enjoy it, to travel, and and. Uh, uh, you know, uh, this will always be a super special place to me, and I'll always stay engaged. But uh, but I'm not a coach forever uh, because there's other things I'd like to do. And it, along those lines, have you? I know probably know the answer to this question before I ask it, but have you um, thought anything about like what you hope your legacy will be? Once you leave, all I think about legacies are that those are for other people to decide. Um, I really do. I think uh, I think talking about your own legacy is uh, <laughs> it, it just doesn't. You don't determine your own legacy. Uh, other people will determine that. And and I you know so I, I don't even I don't even want to get into it. It's just uh, you, you hope that people think that you've. More than anything, that you've been a decent person throughout all that time, whether it's about championships or whether it's about uh, the student athletes that that came through your program. Uh, but it's just you know you you can do any job well and still be kind and thoughtful and unselfish. Uh, 
you don't have to be a screamer and yeller as a coach. You don't, you don't have to go out. You know, I'm not. I don't. I don't have a Twitter account. I don't. I'm not. You don't have to go out promoting yourself. Uh, you can. Uh, you can. You can do fine and well without all that. And that's that's the road I've chosen. Yeah. Well, we started off this podcast, or maybe before we started recording, uh, with me telling you that. Um, I believe that everybody has a story to tell, a unique story to tell. Um, and I think those stories can be inspiring to others, whether whether we realize it or not. Um, and your um, humble comment was, of course, you didn't know that your story would, would be dull. that to anybody pretty else. Dull. That's what I said. Uh, pretty, pretty dull. dull. <laughs> and and I, I think, you know, hopefully those who have listened to this podcast, which may just be my mom and dad uh, at this point. But I think they've probably heard that um, it's not quite as dull as you think. And, um, you know, what what I heard as a player and what I've seen since and what I even heard this morning um, is that, you know, the the call to leave a place better than you found it. Um, And I think that's what you've done here at Belmont. And – it's it was uh i was in was fortunate enough a few years back to be inducted into the belmont hall of fame um and i can't quite remember everything i said in my speech because i got a little emotional but i can recall saying that it's been one of the greatest honors of my life to to be a part of this fraternity if you want to call it that this this group of Belmont basketball players um, because it, it's it's taught me a lot uh, of what it means to be um, a man and a husband and a friend and um, so I hope and I know that somebody will will hear our discussion this morning and um, be encouraged and be inspired by what you had to say. That's kind. Of, I've had a lot of help along the way. Yeah. Um, well, we're believe it or not, we're a little bit over an hour, so we will wrap up here. Maybe we've left some meat on the bone in case we want to do this again sometime. <laughs> Part two. Um, be pretty short, Wes. Uh, real quick, uh, any any thoughts on the upcoming season? Anything you want to share? Uh, really young. Youngest team maybe we've ever had, even back to your days, uh, or maybe that first group that you came right after. We had a bunch of freshmen, and you came the next year. we got nine freshmen out of 15 guys right now. And uh, all sorts of freshmen, uh, redshirt freshmen, true freshmen, walk-on freshmen, walk-on redshirt freshmen, you name it. But they ended up all in one class. Uh, but then got some good veterans coming back. So uh, I think it will be a typical Belmont team. Uh, I think we'll be able to play more people and play a little faster and harder. And, uh, uh, and you're always looking forward to it this time of year. Well, one thing I've learned, and I'm sure the Belmont faithful will echo it, is that every year or every time I've thought to myself, uh, we're going to be down this year, we're going to be rebuilding, or the year we lost Ian and Karan, and then you just came back next year and won the won the league and had a player of the year. Every year something like that has happened, I've felt this could be a down year. Well, the, the team just finds a way to um, – respond and and have the have the success that this program's becoming known for so let's hope, let's hope it happens again yeah well best <laughs> of luck thanks, thanks again for, for doing this. this i really appreciate the time uh appreciate our friendship and um we'll see how we'll see how this is received thank you
Well, if you've made it this far, let me first say thank you. I really enjoyed my conversation with Coach Bird, and as someone who played for Coach for four years and then worked with him for about ten more, he told some stories that I've never even heard before. With this being the first podcast I've ever recorded, there are obviously some audio issues. While I can't promise they will all be fixed in the near term, because I'm still figuring this all out, I will do my best to put out the best possible product I can each week. I would love to hear from you with any thoughts on this podcast. If you have any suggestions on someone you might know who has a fascinating story to tell and would be willing to do so on this podcast, I welcome those suggestions. If you or your company would have any interest in becoming a sponsor of this podcast, I would be happy to have a discussion about that with you as well. You can email any feedback you might have to storyprintpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Wes Bertner for podcast updates and to see when new episodes are released. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend or a family member or a complete stranger about it and help us grow the community of StoryPrint listeners. If you have subscribed, you will automatically be notified when new podcasts are available, or you can check back next week as a new podcast will be released each Monday. Thanks again for your time.